on social media Carson at Carsobi he covers all sorts of sports not just basketball bunch of different shows basically every single day check him out there at Carsobi like I said before and you can follow me at Eric Ruby underscore or you can follow the show at the underscore 1v1 show one is the numeral not O-N-E. I think I explained that well who cares we have a lot of basketball news to talk about and we have a lot of basketball to talk about because it's coming back a lot earlier, or at least it is set to come back a lot earlier than what we expected as the NBA announced that they are targeting a December 22nd return date for the NBA sometime around Christmas time for the 2021 regular season to start. That comes about two months after the 2020 bubble experience ends, which of course led to some questions. Are players going to have enough time to rest? How crazy is free agency going to be? How is the draft going to be impacted? A lot of people were being on the pessimistic side on when this was going to start, maybe looking at later in 2021, but we got the news. It's looking like it's going to start earlier. You think that's a good idea, Carson? You think it's a bad idea? Do you not care? Do you just want basketball back in your life? What is it? It's tough for me to detach my selfish need to have basketball back from whether or not it's an objectively good or bad idea, but I think that it is the right way to go about it because, yes, you can argue that maybe there will be some element of fatigue for teams that really made deep playoff runs, but they also did have five months off leading up to that, which is an offseason in itself. Now, it's not the same because you come back, you play, and then you have a briefer rest, but I don't think it's going to be a huge issue in that respect, and I think it's going to be great for the NBA to line up with this schedule because obviously Christmas basketball is incredible. It's one of my favorite things in the world, and I cannot wait to have that. I also selfishly cannot wait to watch basketball when I'm not in school, and I can watch literally as much as I want, basically. So in all those respects, I think it's great. I think that you line it up to where you don't conflict too much with the NFL schedule, and then you can sort of dominate your normal stretch from... March through June and it's interesting to me that they're going for the 72 game schedule I think that something a lot of people talked about was potentially them trying to use this as a permanent shift to a December start so they don't overlap with the NFL nearly as much to begin with and they can sort of dominate more of the calendar year it seems like they're not going to do that but I think it's going to be great to have basketball back and I don't really foresee that many issues coming out of this as long as they can monitor and be safe COVID wise yeah and and we'll get into what they need to do to be safe and to take precautions and everything personally I do think it's a little bit early and I think it might affect how star players especially those that went deep into playoffs will play as far as when the season starts like we might be excited to get basketball back but I'm not sure all of the stars will be playing as many marquee games this season so that could be a problem in itself but of course you start it now so you can also free it up for the possibility of Olympic basketball as well NBA players and NBA media love having those summers off the long summers of free agency where there's plenty of room for 
teams to get deals done and trades done. And in this free agency, you're only going to have about a month long to get everything done. So you might not see as much movement. I get it. It's understandable to try to leave that summer free because you want to get back to that regular schedule. But I wouldn't be surprised if star players who are looking to take care of their body, you know, don't take this regular season as seriously, especially if home court is not something that really comes into play. We're not looking at fans really being a factor at all, even in the playoffs, and the playoffs are so far away, but if you're not fighting for home court, like we saw in the bubble, home court really didn't matter. Is LeBron James going to play in the middle of February, like on a Tuesday when he could be resting his knees? I don't know. He's in the latter part of his career, and if seating isn't important, you could get stuff like that. So there's a couple things you need to balance. I like the 72 games for sure. I think a shorter schedule is great. Uh, They're taking out the All-Star game. They're only scheduling it halfway in advance. But what do you think they need to do in order to make it safe? Because what we've seen out of major sporting leagues who haven't done a bubble is that there's been some COVID problems. The MLB had some and kind of handled it. And then, of course, they ended with some that's still going on right now. But the NFL has kind of been plagued with them and has to reschedule a lot of games. So you're Adam Silver. You're going in his shoes. You're shaving your head. What are you doing? How are you sc- scheduling this, organizing it, making it all safe? Well, I cannot purport to be a COVID expert or an infectious disease expert, but I do know that there has been discussion about them doing a sort of MLB-style series thing where you would play the same team a couple times consecutively, which to me seems pretty smart. You limit travel, you limit the interaction that you're going to have between teams from all over the country in that same stretch of time. So I think if that's something that would be smart, I think obviously I lean towards not having any fans. I know that that is something that the NFL and MLB have both disregarded, but I think if you look at sort of the leanings of the NBA where they are typically pretty conservative with this stuff and do not want to take risks and obviously just went into a full-blown bubble when no one else has done anything close to that, I think that they will probably lean towards no fans as well, which I think is just... But this is coming back because money. I mean, we haven't really talked about that much, but you know, part of the reason why they're pushing for that December start is because financially it also makes the most sense. So these owners who are financially incentivized, if they're in states that allow fans... You know, what's kind of stopping them from doing it? Because they're not the first to do it. They're just following trends now. And that makes it less dangerous for them. They're not going to get as much blame. Well, not to be overly cynical and pessimistic, but if we can think way back when to when this whole COVID thing began, the talk of the second wave centered around when we get back into traditional flu season, which is the real winter months, which we are going to be approaching as the NBA season gets underway. So... Obviously, it's not like we're doing a great job of managing COVID right now, and it does seem like, by and large, the country has sort of just accepted that there's a certain amount of risk with everything and that they're going to proceed with some degree of normalcy. But if we have another real kick up as far as COVID cases, then I don't think that's something that they can sustain. And it's a question for all professional sports leagues that I think that we don't really want to address. And I really desperately hope it doesn't happen, obviously, but... I don't know, maybe things get worse and then fans get taken out of the picture and I hope that we can just have sports to begin with. So I don't think incorporating fans is worth the risk, but of course, I am not someone who's going to benefit financially from it and I understand that. Right, and you know, it it is an indoor sport. You know, there's no baseball opening the stadiums, there's no football open-air stadiums or huge stadiums and 
the, even limiting the capacity, I mean, I've been to Phoenix Suns games recently, and they were not near capacity. You're still around a lot of people, even if it's not full, especially in those smaller arenas. Uh, I don't know, man. It, it's just weird. Like, are teams going to change their arenas around to maybe make it look like the bubble itself? Put large screens around the edge? Because it was kind of funny with the NFL and the MLB when there was no fans and them like panning out to a completely empty stadium. That's kind of depressing. And the aesthetic of the bubble was well done. So I don't know, maybe each team could take into their own account and talk to the players and see what they like on the sides, what where they want the screens, where they want to see the fans. I think that would be cool to see. I have a personal question, though. What would it take to get you to an NBA game like this season? Does there need to be a vaccine? Does there only need to be like 10 people there and it's just Carson Breber on the sideline? Because me personally, I don't know if there's really anything that could get me to a sporting event relatively soon at all. If there were 10 people there, you're going to that game. Don't kid yourself. You can be as far away as you want to be. You kind of have to. I don't know. I think that for me, it's probably not worth the risk. You know, and where I come from, where I have been in the Bay Area, really nothing is open. So I haven't even gotten used to being able to really do anything. Like we don't have dining here. Like I know some places in the country have. We obviously don't have sporting events in our entire state, whereas a bunch of other states have returned to that. So I'm not necessarily as eager to get out there and go to a game, but there is a degree. I don't know if there was 10% capacity or something, maybe I would consider going, but it's still probably not worth the risk in my opinion. And if they're going to have fans, they're going to have more than that. So I don't know. Yeah, de definitely. I mean, I would go if maybe I was a media member and there was no fans and it was like my job, then I would kind of make that sacrifice. But it, it's just a tough one to, you know, to kind of negotiating your head the the risk uh, versus reward. But uh, obviously some people don't feel that way. I mean, we've seen tickets sell for the MLB, tickets sell for the NFL, and they'll sell for the NBA as well, even though nobody watches it anymore because everybody talks about politics. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I, I, I digress. Um, but let's talk about how this actually does affect the offseason before we move on and talk about a couple coaching and front office moves around the association. Uh, this free agency class already was pretty weak. There's really not a, a standout superstar like there will be in possibly the next coming years. So it wasn't expected for there to be a lot of movement. In fact, even before the announcement of the season starting early, uh, there were talks about the trade market being more crazy and earth shattering than the free agency. What do you think this does uh, to front offices and to GMs, you know, giving this such a little amount of time, do you think more might just stick with continuity instead of trying to, uh, you know, make these quick decisions without thinking them through? I think if there's a guy you really want to go out and get, you still make that move. But I do think you raise a valid point. If you are considering the difference between re-signing J.J. Barea and picking up D.J. Augustine, maybe you lean towards re-signing J.J. Barea, first of all, specifically with that example, because the Mavs seem to always want to do that. They've had this guy on their roster for 13 years or whatever. Even He'll though never wear another jersey. Yeah. He will never wear another jersey. I love those guys who are just okay, but they never go anywhere else. So I do think that maybe there's some validity there. I still think, though, we see guys quickly integrate and adapt into systems. There's a reason that teams make deals at the trade deadline and then throw guys out there three days later because the NBA is not something that system-wise is overly difficult to adapt to. NBA teams basically play the same kind of basketball across the board, and so I think that for that reason, 
it's not like you're taking a huge gamble trying to get someone even with the shortened offseason, but maybe we do see that play somewhat of a role when it comes to re-signing the guys who are kind of just filling out your bench, where maybe you like someone slightly more, but you would prefer the continuity under these specific circumstances. Yeah, and of course, you know, I follow the team closely because I am a fan of them, but the Phoenix Suns are a team that I look at and that I think you had a ton of injuries, you lost a ton of close games, you know, you were basically a Damian Lillard performance away from getting into the playoffs. Uh, Why not just run that back? I mean, guys like Christian Wood, if they're interested in signing with your team and you can get them, I see no reason not to pursue that, but there's no reason to make a major trade unless you're going to land a superstar caliber player at this point. You might as well run it back because you're not going to have that much time in training camp either. If the league starts on the 22nd, you're going to training camp on December 1st. That's a month away, basically. Like, that's not that long away. And you have the draft and everything like that. So I could see a lot of teams maybe not making that initial step and initial move. And it'll be interesting to see who holds back and who doesn't. And even if, like, star players like Kawhi, because such a big problem with the Clippers was they were saying he wasn't playing that much. Is he going to play a lot this season? You know, is somebody gets injured? What's going to be the protocol with that? Do they travel with the team? How do you deal with travel? It's all sorts of questions that, you know, you want to trust the NBA because they did such a great experience with the bubble and they really went all out. But there's just a certain ceiling that gets put on your safety when you are not in a bubble, which I actually personally feel that there's a possibility. There's not a possibility, but there was a way that they could do like a two and a half week bubble at a time where teams like four teams would go to a city at a time for two and a half weeks, and then you'd have a week off in between so players could go home. Uh, I felt like that was the way they could have done it, but obviously they're doing it in a uh, in a different way, a different sense. But uh, anything else to add about the NBA starting soon? I'm sure we'll get more details as to what we should expect on a day-to-day basis uh, coming soon, but uh, anything else to that you thought was important or interesting? I'm just really excited. We had a long time with no basketball because the world turned upside down, obviously. And in many ways, that for me kind of started with a basketball game when I was waiting for the Thunder Jazz game to start and it just didn't start and I didn't have the volume on, so I didn't know what was happening. And now here we are. We just had the end of an awesome season and hopefully we will have another one sooner rather than later. So optimistically, I am very excited that they are on track to come back sooner rather than later. Me as well. I still wouldn't be mad if they moved it to January, if that's what the players want. I'm a pretty pro players guy, so if that's what they say they want to do and they need more time, I mean, give them more time. I don't see that big of a problem with it. It's only a month. On to some NBA news. Uh, This literally happened right after we posted our last podcast. Carson and I kind of joke about how it's kind of hard to do an NBA podcast because stuff is happening all the time. And we were like, oh, I think we finally got everything done in time and we're going to be timely and relevant. And we did this whole coaching talk. And then as soon as I press post on our podcast, it is announced that Stan Van Gundy will become the new head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. And recently he even said that Zion Williamson, he views him as positionless. So that can get you into his head and give you an idea of what he's thinking about with this team. He's been on the record saying about how much he loves this team with his tweets when he was just being a media member and a broadcaster so it's not that big of a surprise that he would end up here but do you think it's a good fit like Stan Van Gundy I think everybody loves on the broadcast side he stands up for social justice which is awesome uh but as far as head coaching goes are you happy with this hire for the New Orleans Pelicans 
I think it's an interesting one because we've never really seen Van Gundy in his career in that sort of youthful situation where he's grooming and developing talent. Because if you go to his time in Miami, they were almost instantly contenders, and obviously he wasn't actually there for very long. But then you go to Orlando, and they're instantly contenders. In Detroit, they weren't much good, but they were trying to be good, and they had a relatively veteran roster. So I'm interested in seeing how he responds and how he works with this relatively young group of guys who still do want to win sooner rather than later. And I'm also just interested in if he is still a capable NBA coach because obviously this is a guy who has excelled at as far as coaching up guys on the defensive end of the ball, which is something that this Pelicans team desperately needs, not just schematically, but as far as having that effort. They just didn't get back in transition for so much of this season, and it killed them in that respect. And maybe if they had given more effort there, and if they had been a more adept team defensively, they could have been in the playoffs because they were good enough on the offensive end. So I'm interested by his comments about Zion. Zion is not positionless, and basketball is by and large a game where, yes, it's not the point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center that doesn't really mean that much anymore. At the same time, Zion is at the very least a, a member of your front court, and that's undeniable. So he's versatile, and I'll give him that. I'm interested in seeing what Van Gundy does. I don't really have that much of an idea of how good he will actually be since he's been out of the game for a couple years. And obviously, his last job wasn't a great success, but he also was handling GM duties, which generally does not go very well when you're also trying to handle the head coaching job. Yeah, definitely Stan Van, the GM, does not deserve a job, but I'm fine with giving Stan Van, you know, another head coaching opportunity. Uh, he's got to be in love with Zion because remember when in Detroit when he said to build an effing wall? Uh, Zion is a human wall, so he is going to be extremely happy to play him. He said he's positionless because Zion can still handle the ball. Like, I think one of the more underrated aspects of his game is his passing, uh, and he has that ability. Yeah, I'm going to have to push back on that because... You can only say something is underrated for so long until it becomes overrated. It's what happened with Drew Holiday. Okay, that's fair. But when you talk about Zion, but when you talk about Zion, you talk about his bounce. You talk about how he's going to dunk on people, how he could score his offensive rebounds. You don't talk about his passing a lot. I know some people do, but it's still, I think, an underrated aspect of his game. Drew Holiday, on the other hand, your point, he's always talked about as most underrated. You're not underrated anymore, pal. I agree with you on that. That's just the thing that I have. You can only say something is underrated for so long until you have overstated it. And yeah, Zion is a good passer for his size. He has nice vision. He's also not Arvidas Sabonis out there. He's not changing the game with his playmaking. And I do feel like we talk about it a decent amount. But yes, obviously he's incredibly versatile and he can't handle. And so much of his offense is generated out of him attacking within 18 feet off the dribble. And he just bulldozes guys over. But he's not positionless. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that if what well, if he was to run and initiate your offense for a couple plays, well, Drew ran off ball and was whatever. Like, I, I don't think that's that big of a deal. I think you can get away with it. And if that's something that I remember years ago, people were uproaring because they were trying to have Giannis run some point guard. They're like, oh, he can't do anything like that. And I mean, if Giannis is handling the ball in transition and there are times where Giannis can play make and if Zion can step into that role as well and put that kind of into his arsenal, I think that that really does make him positionless because of his size and his ability to move on the perimeter as well. Um, it's exciting. I think the Pelicans team, like you said, needed a kick in the butt. I still believe in guys like Lonzo. Brandon Ingram is on the edge of being a superstar, in my opinion. Zion Williamson can be a superstar. And 
Drew Holiday gets so much respect from NBA players as the best defender in the league, even though he doesn't make all NBA teams. So that's going to be somebody that Stan Van loves as well. So I, I see it being a good fit. Like, is it the perfect head coach? No, but I don't think there was a perfect head coach out on the market for them. So as far as working with what you got and replacing Alvin Gentry uh, with a new, fresh leader for these young guys, I, I think it has the... Uh, the opportunity to work well. I wouldn't say it's 100% guaranteed success in a home run, but I think that it's definitely the best move they probably could have make made, grant, uh, granted the position that they were in. A um, couple other moves around the NBA. A GM move. We talked last episode about Daryl Morey and the Rockets mutually parting ways, even if it was a mutual parting of ways or a secret firing, whatever it was, he was no longer part of that organization. And he kind of jumps to the exact opposite. Of the Rockets. He goes from small ball, nobody under 6'7", to the Sixers, who everybody in their starting lineup, I think, is 6'7", or above. So, a huge culture shift for Daryl Morey. A huge culture shift for the 76ers, bringing in Doc Rivers and Daryl Morey, basically changing up a lot of stuff. And uh, are we going to see a new-look 76ers this upcoming year, or are they going to try to run it with this roster and then make adjustments? Because I could see them kind of going either way. Well... I think that Daryl Morey would love to shake things up completely, even though he is the kind of guy who wants to put as many stars on one team as you can. It's very clear that Tobias Harris and Al Horford are not helping this team. No one is going to take either of those contracts on, though. You're paying Tobias Harris for another th four years, I think. No one's going to take that contract on. So what I think you have to do is retool with the pieces around the big four guys, even though they clearly do not complement each other. I would be interested in trying to move Josh Richardson, even though he's a very good basketball player. I don't think he's a good enough pure shooter to be playing alongside at least Harris, Embiid, and Simmons because I think we see Horford sent to the bench permanently this season, even with the money that he's being paid. And then I think what Morey can really do to shake things up here is go and be as aggressive as he possibly can in acquiring shooters. The Sixers have five picks in the draft. Spend just about every one of them on a shooter, in my opinion. Go pick guys up off the scrap heap. We just saw him do it with Daniel House and Ben McLemore, and he finds these guys who are capable in filling that role, and he maximizes their potential. So I think that that's what his role is going to be, but do I think he has some sort of genie powers to where he can wave a wand and get the Knicks or some foolish organization to take Al Horford or Tobias Harris? I do not think that is possible, which sucks for the Sixers team because that is the situation they're in for the foreseeable future. Well, it might be possible for the Knicks because anything is possible with the Knicks. Yeah. Uh, but, I, I mean, I, I agree. If I'm the Sixers, you know, I'm looking at Embiid and Simmons and I need to give it another year, in my personal opinion. You just have to. Uh, the team that's built around them is so bad, though. It's so bad. And like you said, you have to pursue shooters vigorously you have to get shooting you cannot just rely on Furkan Korkmaz for the season you can't especially if you have uh championship aspirations which they should have uh obviously Embiid and Simmons are still young and it takes time and they're not exactly the perfect fits for each other because the best system for all of those guys is probably four out one in them being the one in uh and with both of them on the court at the same time you can't do that uh but I, I, I think you need to kind of realize the situation you're in, come to terms with it, and just make the best of it because you were a game winner away from going to the conference finals a couple years ago. You had an uninspired performance in this year's playoffs, but of course injuries played into that. You have a whole new roster when it comes to coaching and GM, and 
you need to go in and have kind of a culture shift. I know that we've talked a lot about culture with the 76ers, trust the process. I feel like this is the end of the process. Like this move has kind of transitioned them into the next step and the pressure's been on them for a while, but I think it's really on them this year. I did see the idea floated out uh, of a trade between Daryl Morey's new team and Daryl Morey's old team, a Ben Simmons for James Harden-centric trade. Uh, I think it's idiotic. I don't think it'll happen, but are you intrigued at least? Is that is that something that you're like, wait a second, that would be fun? I mean, it would be a heck of a lot of fun for the Sixers. I'm not sure why the Rockets would be dying to take on a Ben Simmons, Russell Westbrook backcourt. That doesn't exactly seem any more ideal to me at all than Simmons and Embiid together. I know that that was talked about when Morey was with the Rockets that he was trying to go get Embiid. I don't see any world in which that really happens, though, because I think the Rockets are going to hold on to James Harden with all their might. Or I should say, actually, when Maury was with the Rockets, the conversation was about Embiid for Westbrook, potentially. I just don't see James Harden getting moved until he is absolutely forced to for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't see him getting moved this offseason. I do see the possibility, because we live in an era of player movement, that they can look to go and get rid of James Harden and move past him. When he does start transitioning from his like prime prime to the later years of his prime and them trying to get as much for him as they could, I don't think it'll happen, but I think it's a possibility. Uh, but, you know, mentioning the Rockets, we do need to mention their new head coaching hire because they had to replace Mike D'Antoni somehow. And uh, that is with Steven Silas, the Dallas Mavericks long-term assistant coach, son of Paul Silas, a former NBA coach, agreed to a four-year deal with the Rockets. He's been credited as an offensive guru, somebody who can create an offense. He's had a lot of great guards to work around in his career, obviously most recently Luka Doncic. And now he gets to go and... Coach, basically the closest comp to Luka Doncic, the closest player to him in the NBA, in James Harden, this term of play style, scoring ability, passing ability, everything of that nature. Not a name that's really been mentioned a lot on the coaching market itself, especially the last couple of years. Even out of assistant coaches, you hear names like like Becky Hammond a lot more than you hear a Steven Silas, but I'm cool with it. Like kind of Nate Bjorkman, I don't know that much about him, so I can't give like a super strong take, but... If he's trusted under Rick Carlisle the same way that Bjorken was trusted under Nurse and he has his reputation, I don't see why it's a bad move for the Rockets. I like it. And the reason I like it is when I looked at them moving on from D'Antoni, it felt to me like the obligatory, our era with this guy is over, we have to move on because we didn't win a title. And I don't like that kind of thinking. And I looked at the open market, and if you bring in a guy like Nate McMillan, some veteran coach who is clearly just not as good at his job as D'Antoni, that would have been stupid. But if you're taking a chance on a younger guy who has this offensive ingenuity, then I think that there's real potential there. And so I much prefer it to the other guys who are out there on the market. I can't pretend to know a huge amount about Silas either, but he seems to be a very well-regarded guy in the Mavericks organization. I know that there have been a lot of congratulatory comments from people around that team, from Luka, from Carlisle from Cuban wishing him well which I think speaks to the kind of guy that he is hopefully and yeah I mean obviously what they just did in Dallas was incredibly effective they had the greatest offense of all time with really only one true offensive star and a bunch of shooters and rim runners around him so I don't know how much of a role Silas played in maximizing that talent but those principles were highly effective so if he played any part in that then I think that he deserves credit and I think he could be a good NBA head coach we'll see well said. Uh, 
you know, the, the man who he's replacing, he's still on the market right now. And, uh, you know, who's not out on the market, uh, his former players, Amari Stoudemire and Steve Nash, uh, as they announced that Amari's rejoining his old buddy Steve in uh, in Brooklyn to join that staff. I think Amari and Kyrie are going to have some very in-depth, <laughs> fun conversations with each other. That's going to be uh, fun to watch. And it says that it said that he'll be in a player development role. Obviously, Amari is somebody who thrived with Phoenix Suns, uh, went over to the Knicks, had a great start. Obviously, injuries kind of derailed it from there. Ended up uh, having a really great career overseas and is now returning to the NBA uh, after some rumors that he was trying to play as an assistant coach. Any thoughts on uh, on this move? Obviously, uh, it was surprising. Uh, people weren't really expecting it, but it looks like Brooklyn really is going to a, a coaching by committee uh, model. And I think with their roster and, of course, their superstars in Kyrie and KD, that's probably the best model to go with. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. As, a, of course, I've said it before, a Suns fan. It's pretty fun. And a Brooklyn Nets fan, kind of, as well. Uh, I've, I've established that for a, for a minute, too. So it's a it's a cool combination. But but what do you think? Is it just kind of like a, a name ploy? Or do you think, you know, this is something that Amari could really bring some value in? I'm really interested in it because I have no concept of how good of a coach he will be. What fascinates me and where I wonder if there's a bit of a trap here is the Nets, and I'm all for player empowerment, but Katie and Kyrie are a couple of very fragile and kind of egotistical guys, it seems, at least from the outside. And if they are just bringing in guys who they sort of consider their friends, who they like and who they think we sort of just need figureheads, I don't know if that's going to work because that's not really generally how great NBA organizations operate. So that's no disrespect towards Amari. Maybe he's going to be fantastic, but I do feel like he's the kind of guy who you think is relatable to as a player, like Steve Nash was brought in to be. And I don't know if that's what this organization needs. At the same time, it is what their two-star guys want, and that has to be your top priority is satisfying those guys above all else. So I'm interested in seeing how he does. I really can't offer some expert opinion, but I like him. I'm glad to see him back in the NBA. I think that Katie and Kyrie get a little bit of a of a bad rap. Like I don't think that they're unpleasant people to deal with. Uh, sure, I think they've had their moments, but I don't they've know. They've had a lot fragile. of fragile. I don't know. If fragile is the the right word. Bro, I think Kevin Durant. Strongly, I think they're strongly opinionated, dude. Kevin Durant claps back to people on Twitter, and he just kind of like does himself, man. Like I really, I'm not, I'm not a big Kevin Durant hater. I'm a Kevin Durant fan. I think I'm that a Golden State Warriors way, fan. I think. I think I think that the narration of Kevin Durant being this big crybaby and whatever is super overblown. Uh, I think a that people attach being a themselves crybaby to it. and being sensitive and bordering on but fragility. What's, but, but I don't. But fragility is not the right word for some dude who's mentally as strong as Kevin Durant, who's done the things that he's done, has overcome the injury. Like fragi- Maybe you're fragile right. is not the word. Fragile is not the word. Is it? again strongly opinionated to where like if he believes in something or he wants to do something he'll do it yeah and is that the best for every situation no but when you're Kevin freaking Durant you could do whatever you want uh and I I just I feel like it's overblown I'm not saying it's not there but he's a normal human like we all can over we all can react to things and clap back to things and care about things but still you know conduct ourselves in a professional way and this is the first time that he's been able to 
kind of change an organization throughout by showing up there and then making changes because he didn't really show up and change Golden State's organization. He joined the organization, but he's changing this one. And I don't think it's a bad move. I think you play into them. And I think that the narrative narrative of them being bad teammates and whatever is pretty overblown. And we'll see that kind of disproven in Brooklyn. That's that's my own personal theory and uh, and opinion. I, I believe in them. I mean, I don't know. Do you Do you not believe in the Brooklyn experiment so far? Because I'm looking at them as people who I'm looking to be at the top of the East as long as Kevin Durant is healthy. I know that's a big if, but if he is, then that's where I see them. Well, I think that they need to do retooling of the roster around them because they have a great asset to me in Spencer Dinwiddie who does not really complement what they're trying to do, and I think a couple more quality wings would really help them there. But no, I'm not trying to discredit what KD and Kyrie are capable at their best. They're brilliant basketball players. I just become slightly concerned about the compounding factor of them together. And I don't think it's going to be some huge thing that is going to tear them down. But I do think it's worth considering when you look at how toxic both of their previous situations got. I don't think that that's some coincidence. And I think we can be pro player and acknowledge that these two specific players have sort of earned themselves a reputation as being slight but, disruptors. Uh... And maybe it works. I totally I mean, could there work. Are players, there are players on the Celtics, like like the Jason Tatums, Jalen Brown, who have gone on record and been like, I liked Kyrie Irving as a teammate. I don't know why there's that narrative around him. Like Kevin Durant. Okay, Russell Westbrook obviously hates him. I, there's more deep-seated than that. I wouldn't say it was a toxic environment in OKC. I think that the, the move was just unexpected. I'm not talking I don't about think OKC. I'm like talking about towards bridges. the end in Golden State. But in Golden State... It was just a natural end, you know. It was it, there was injuries involved. He wanted to move on with his life. People in the organization were like, "He was great, nothing but professional when he was here," and we knew that he was looking to move on. I wouldn't necessarily say that people were looking at Kevin Durant as a toxic teammate in Golden State. Like, are you referring referencing the Draymond Green fight? Like, that's just guys bad in basketball going back and forth with each other getting heated. That that just happens. I don't think I've really ever seen a ton of reporting. I mean, maybe I've missed it. You are somebody who follows Golden State probably closer than I, but I don't know. I didn't think that Kevin Durant was a toxic teammate, was a huge storyline when he was in Golden State. There was an entire book written by the athletic reporter, I believe, on the Warriors. I think his name's Ethan Strauss, basically talking about how toxic KD was. And I haven't read the book, and maybe there was a bit of an agenda there, but I think it's pretty well documented that he is at the very least not the easiest guy to coexist with and I'm not making a huge deal about it I think that these guys are going to play fantastic basketball this year but I also don't know if their utopia of being together and bringing in these guys who they really like is going to be a smashing hit like I don't think they're going to win the championship but that has more to do with their roster around them than them as individuals or their personalities I don't think it's a huge deal but I also do think that it is a reality I mean that's fair. I, I, I guess I would guess I'm not I'm not that worried about it. I mean anything is really a, a possibility when you look in the NBA. So is it possible that they blow up at each other? Yeah. I, I just personally that's not even really on my radar. But you know who knows? Maybe I'm completely I agree. wrong. It's, it's not happened really on before. Mine either. Yeah, it's happened before. I've been wrong a lot before. I'll be wrong a lot again. So the not not that big of a deal. Nothing really else as far as NBA news. The Jazz sold for uh, almost two billion dollars. That's just kind of like a, a head-scratcher to them talking about how much money they were losing, but we don't need to get too deep into that. We do want to have a, a little bit of a fun segment, though, as well, and we did this last week uh, talking about the forgotten moments 
in the NBA season. And what we're going to be doing this week is we are going to be drafting a 3v3 team of bench slash rotation players in the NBA. So we're taking stars and, and players that are really good out of it. And then, of course, we're going to take players who are in sixth man of the year uh, conversation for the last couple of years just because those are basically starters. They could be starting on a ton of teams. And uh, one more rule to lay out here is that this is very subjective and both Carson and I have some veto cards or at least some discussion cards to where if we pick somebody, the other can say, oh, that might that player might be a little bit too good to to be on this team and we could talk about that. But the way that we decided to see who would go first is that I found a trivia question of medium difficulty uh not like an easy one but not a super obscure one and Carson is going to get one chance at answering this if he answers it right he will get the first pick if he answers it wrong he will get the second pick easy as that Carson I've got one question for you well two technically but number one are you ready yes okay this one is who played the most NBA games in a row with 1,192 games? AC Green. Okay, I, I felt like you were going to get that easy. I knew that one. I knew that it would be AC Green, but AC Green's not a name that the, the casual NBA fan can pull out of their head, so I felt like that was a, a good difficulty, but I, I figured that, that you would get around that. You're, you're a pretty smart guy. I've seen you do trivia before. Um, do you have any specific strategies going into this before you give your number one pick? Uh, or are you just kind of saying I'm going, I'm going all offense here. My goal is to shoot your team off the floor to dominate you in the pick okay. and roll offensively. And we'll see if it pays off. But when I'm picking my bench guys, we're just going for explosion. So I have three guys who I'm hoping to get. We'll see how your draft board shakes out with my first pick. Out of respect, I have to take my guy Christian Wood. Okay, okay. I uh, I wasn't looking at Christian Wood. I know that he's great, uh, obviously, um, and I'm not surprised that you took him. So I I, I could definitely see that. Um, not a, not really a, a shooter though, you know. Uh, but the, the he pick, can space the, pick the floor play. though. He gets he gets space it. He's he gets space it, especially in three on three. Yeah, and three and three is, I mean, that's that's a thing with most of these players as well. They have so much room to operate and so much room in 3v3. Now I've got a pretty long list of players. And when you said go all offense, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm picking Michael Porter Jr. Um, 6'10", a bucket from anywhere. In 3v3, the defensive schemes and whatnot is going to be a lot easier for him to comprehend. There's going to be a lot less for him to break down, not a lot of places for him to get lost, so he can use his big body to at least defend, switch on to anybody else, at least contest a shot. He's a bucket from anywhere. Uh, I don't really lose in offense on any part of the floor. He could score in the paint, he could score in the mid-range, he could spread it out to three, hit contested shots. Uh, Michael Porter Jr., I don't. I didn't think he would be my number one pick, but you know, when you said all offense, I kind of felt like I had to. So uh, I'm going Michael Porter Jr. for my first pick. So uh, for your second pick, well, first of all, I'd like to comment on the MPJ pick because I think it's interesting. My thing is, I don't know how much he benefits benefits from three on three because offensively, he's a guy who really is just a floor spacer at this point because of the back injuries he's had. He's not that dynamic athletically, so. 
I don't know how he handles that much one-on-one. It'd be interesting to see. He doesn't really have that cross-and-go-blow-by-people athleticism right now. So, interesting. I am going to go with one of the most dynamic weapons in basketball who comes off the bench, Indolvis Bertans. Dang it, I think dang, that, dang it, dang it, dang it, dang it, dang it, dang it. Let's go. <laughs> I was wondering about the order I should take my guys in, so dang. I'm glad that I got him. Ugh. No one is going to be more valuable as a floor spacer out of the options that we have. And yeah, you can't run him around screens all day as easily, but he's going to have a lot of room to work with. Okay, so you have Christian Wood and Davis Bertans. A great, great start. Uh, I have Michael Porter Jr. And now I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I need, you know, I still need some shooting, but I, I have my spot up shooting as well. I think Michael Porter Jr. can really check a lot of boxes. He's not the most explosive in the world, but also, you know, he's 6'10". He can get his shot off, shots off and whatever, and you're not running up and down the court, you know, and he does have ISO ability. So, again, we're not, we're not picking, like, the great, greatest players in the world. Uh, well, we are, but just the lesser half of the greatest players in the world. So I, I've got a couple ideas in my head. Either I go to have some sort of defensive matchup uh, to Christian Wood, um, you know, a big man, but I have my eyes on a big man that I think is pretty underrated that I'm going to try to hold on to. Um, I'm going to pick a defensive guy. I'm going to pick somebody that is tirelessly running around and just in people's faces. He sticks to screens. He goes over. He will steal the ball from your hands. He'll chase down, block you. He's explosive. He can pass a little bit. He's not completely inept offensively, and he's going to be that that uh, guy. You know what I mean? Just that uh, guy. I'm going with Matisse Thibel. Uh and he's going to be somebody that will probably be on Davis Bertans as Bertans is going to run around and just fire threes and Tybal is just going to follow him around and make sure he doesn't get the ball. So if we take away that shooting from you, uh, and of course on the other end, he could be quick. He could dish out if people collapse on him driving. He has the explosiveness to dunk on people. Overall, I think he's a great player. I think he's got a, a pretty bright future in this league and in this three-on-three, three, his defense especially because he can guard – even Christian Wood as well. Like he'll just steal the ball from Christian Wood. Uh, so Matisse Thibel, active hands Thibel, I'm uh, is my second pick. I like it. You're going with the young guys. My concern would be his floor spacing, but obviously, if you're putting him in there as the guy to stick on for Tans or whoever, he will do a good job at that. So with my last pick, I need a lead guard, and I'm ruling out the Dennis Schroeders and Lou Williams of the world because we said no perennial sixth man of the year candidates and those guys are in that tier, which makes it a little bit more difficult because there isn't really another standout option. I want someone who can be that dynamic shooter off the dribble, who can be a capable facilitator out of the pick and roll because a bunch of my offense is going to be getting Christian Wood, who is the most efficient pick and roll big man in the NBA in that action, and then seeing if we can collapse the defense kick out to an open Davis Bertans, good night, Eric Ruby's three-on-three basketball team. So <laughs> who do I want to fill that role? I'm thinking about maybe D. Rose because he's the better playmaker Ooh. out of all these options, but I'm going to go with my guy, Norman Powell. I think that maybe he needs to grow a little bit as that decision maker, but as the shooter, as the athlete getting downhill, I don't think there's a better option out there. And as I'm looking around, yeah, maybe there are better playmakers, and maybe I'm going with too pure of scoring right here, but I'm going to go on the guy who I feel like is the most talented all-around option in Norman Powell. You know, that that's fair. Uh, you definitely have an interesting team. Uh, if I can take away Bertans with Tybal, 
I, I feel like you're lacking offensively. Uh, and I know Ooh, Norman Powell's a bucket. I know. Look, I know. I know. I know. I know. But I, I still feel like uh, I still feel like if I take away Bertans, I, I could be pretty lethal. Okay. So I have Michael Porter Jr. and I have Matisse Thybul. I need somebody to guard Christian Wood. I mean, technically, technically, Michael Porter could do it because he's tall. But I don't know if I want him in the pick and roll all the time. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'd do with him, but he's just a tall guy. Uh, there's a couple names I'm looking at. I, I wonder if you're going to let me take this guy because he technically did come off the bench. Uh, I want Serge Ibaka. I got, I got my young guys. I'm taking, I'm taking my veteran. He could space the floor. Great defensive player knows how to play the game. He could score from basically anywhere. Uh, I don't really have much guys that could super create their shot off the dribble, but I'm hoping for a lot of ball movement, uh, with these players, a lot of pick and pops, maybe Matisse driving and having guys out on the wing who can get shots off and, uh, overall a veteran to, to make Christian Woods life a lot harder. Uh, and who can understand and identify guarding pick and rolls with uh, a shooter running around on the outside as well. So I, I went a little bit more defensive minded than, than I thought I was going to, but I feel like I have to make up for an MPJ. Uh, so, so that's, that is my team. I, I really did enjoy this. I have a couple other players that I was looking at. Is there anybody else that you were thinking about drafting? Well, I mentioned D Rose. I think that surge is the best player who was taken in this draft. And I thought about going with him, but since I was going all offense and I wanted to take my guy Christian Wood out of respect, I went with him. But I think Serge is a great pick, especially considering he was the last pick of the draft. No one else who I really thought about, maybe Brandon Clark I could have consider, considered for that same Christian Wood role. I just think Wood is basically better at everything offensively at this point in their careers. And yeah, no one I'm really losing sleep over. I thought about DiVincenzo for that initiator from the perimeter pick and roll ball handler guy, but I just think that Norman Powell is better. So... I like how my team turned out a lot. Okay. So I have, I actually have a decent amount of players and I'll actually, I'll run through them and you let me know what you think. So the number one player that I wrote down that was in my head, because I think he's the best facilitator on his team. Uh, he was coming off the bench. He plays a lot of heavy minutes, but he could still score. Unfortunately, injury plagued Gordon Hayward. Uh, was somebody that I was thinking about just because he really could be that ball movement in your offense. He was the first name I wrote down. Serge was the second name. Norman Powell was the third name. Uh, DJ Augustine, sure. I thought uh, about DJ Augustine. Here's somebody that, you know who I thought you might take? Who? Will Barton. Mm. Actually, he was probably would have been a better choice than Norman Powell. And if he had been healthy this year, he might have been more in the forefront of my mind because he gives me more of that natural playmaking. And he's probably slightly better on the defensive end. So that would have been the better choice, actually, I would say. Too late, though. That that was somebody that I... I, I wouldn't say I was surprised that you didn't take him because he's a, he's not like a super known name and you were doing this relatively off the top. Uh, but he's somebody that I thought about. Uh, somebody to step into the Bertans role. J.J. Redick uh, coming off the bench for New Orleans. Even Seth Curry coming off the bench in Dallas. Joe Ingles, maybe. Um, Tyler Hero came off the bench for a majority of the year. Uh, that was somebody I didn't really know if I was comfortable picking. Uh, Buddy Heald out of Sacramento. Uh, just a, a, a yeah. shooter, somebody who could be a bucket. Sarich out of Phoenix, great passer, a better defender than what he gets credit for. Um, somebody who could who could play. I think he would be a good matchup for Christian Wood. Um, DeAndre Jordan, maybe. Bobby Portis, Thaddeus Young. 
Uh, those were all kind of the names that I, I came up with, but I, I think we've got some pretty good teams. We have some interesting dynamics, you know, I don't think either of us would have picked the other's teams coming into this. Yeah. I'm running your team out the gym, but I do think, Oh, get out of here. Who are you? You're not like, like put Matisse Thibel and Serge Ibaka in the pick and roll. Okay. But, okay. Put Michael Porter Jr. In the pick and roll. Then you have one of those great defensive guys helping. And who are they helping off of? Christian Wood, who sure, sure. But I'll take a Christian Wood jump shot. I'll take How it. are you scoring, though? It's just MPJ shooting in people's faces and Serge taking 16-footers. Thibel is literally Serge a can non-factor take, Serge can take threes. Thibel's going to drive in. You know, he's going he's gonna to do his Good thing. Good luck. Uh, <laughs> Good luck if Thibel's initiating okay, I mean, we're gonna, your we're offense. We're going to create chaos, bro. We're going we're gonna to create chaos. I, I believe in Michael Porter Jr. I think I believe in his creation a little bit more than you do, which is why uh, why I took him. But uh, it's interesting. Maybe we'll uh, we'll tweet it out and see what the, uh, the world has to think about that as well. Well, that'll do it for another episode of the ISO Show. Of course, my name is Eric Ruby. His name is Carson Breber. You can follow us on social media. Follow the show at the underscore 1v1 underscore show. Follow Carson at Carsobi. Myself at at Eric Ruby, leave us a five-star rating if you're so inclined, a comment, a subscription, all that is greatly appreciated. And of course, until next time, enjoy off-season basketball, and in two months, enjoy regular season basketball. We'll see you guys soon.